Welcome everybody and welcome to the Portobello Pavilion live on Portobello Radio. I'm here today with David Graeber. Hi David, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm um, okay for a guy who just had a root canal. My mouth is a little numb, so if I, if I sound difficult to understand, that's the reason. All right, not because you're a public intellectual. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, uh, we, when we promoted this show, we talked about you're an, an anarchist, you're an mm-hmm. anthropologist. Indeed. You're an author. Yes. And mm-hmm. I'd like to pick up on that last thing. Um, you've recently, re- you, sorry, and you're also a professor of anthropology well, at so the LSE. Indeed I am. Um, My job. And also, for those of you <laughs> out there, uh, <laughs> one of the co-founders of Occupy, and we're going to touch on... Yeah, one of about 140 of them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but you were, uh, I mean, David, you're, you're very self-effacing. You were credited with the 99% quote. Um, uh, well, the 99, and yeah. you <laughs> very publicly disavowed that and said it was a collective. Um, we are the 99% was a collective. Uh, I, I suggested 99. Um, and uh, a, a, two Spanish indignados and a Greek anarchist um, added the we, and a food not bombs activist added the R. So it was, in fact, a collective project. Right. I mean, that shows, I mean, you live in a, in a very variegated world. I mean, I'm hoping in a minute, uh, well, not in a minute, in 20 minutes, this is a 50-minute show. Uh Um, Your father, am I right in thinking, fought in the Spanish Civil War? He did, yes. Uh, You were brought up in New York. You you know, you had some shenanigans with Mm -hmm. Yale at some point. There was that, yes. Um, (laughs) But I'd like to start with Bullshit Jobs. Bullshit Jobs is your most recent book. Um, Mm -hmm. It's... It's a. It's kind of incredibly relevant right now with all of us sitting at home. Can, Indeed. Can you yeah. tell the folks back home what the the basic idea behind bullshit jobs is? Yeah, it's um. It's it's an idea that occurred to me because what all grew out of an article. I had a friend who was starting a new magazine. It was a split off from International Times. It was called Strike, and uh, he asked me if I had anything I could write that was would be a little provocative. You know something that nobody else would probably publish. And I was thinking about it, and I thought, well, yeah, there's something I've noticed. I keep running into people who, when you ask them what they do, they basically tell you they do nothing. Or often they're just sort of apologetic, and they'll say, you know, you say, oh, what do you do? I'm an anthropologist. I'll say, oh, nothing really, you know. Um, And you think they're just being modest, and then you kind of of try to pin them down. And they say, well, no, I actually meant it literally. I, I... don't do anything all day. I have this job. I, I don't know if my supervisor knows, but I'm basically just sitting there doing Facebook all day. And I just kept running into people like this. And I thought, is it just me? Is it the circles I'm in? How many people like this are there? Because, you know, I didn't really grow up in a professional background. I, uh, I mean, I come from a working class background. I, I, I don't really understand how this sort of office lo- culture works. So being an anthropologist, I sort of started inquiring and and trying to, well, what do people in offices do all day? And I realized a lot of them don't do anything. And a lot of them do feel that quite strongly that what they do is, you know, if nobody were doing it, it would really make no difference at all. So I said, okay, I'll write something about that. And, you know, back maybe about 100 years ago, Keynes suggested that by by this time, we'd all be working 15-hour weeks, right? Well, why aren't we? Maybe it's not because automation hasn't happened. Actually, most of the jobs that existed in the 30s have been automated away. Maybe it's just because they've made up dummy jobs to keep us all busy. I thought, well, why would they want to do that? 
And that was the article, yeah. So, um, I mean, it definitely struck a chord. And, I mean, the reason I'm very interested in it at the moment is, of course, on whatever it was in this country, March the 23rd, mm -hmm. we were all furloughed off and we were all given what was essentially universal basic income, admittedly kind of means-tested on what we'd earned mm -hmm. previously. Um, I, I, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, and I was very much brought up with that, brought up, sorry, with that mm -hmm. Keynesian idea mm -hmm. that we were going to have a leisure society and the yeah, work too. was mm -hmm. going yeah. to be done by the machines, allowing us all to drift around in the style of Fauntleroy Thomas, you know, looking at the daffodils, writing poems about them, looking at the sky, mm. you know, talking about tigers, tigers burning <laughs> bright. Um, that didn't happen. Why? What stands between us and that leisure society? I mean, obviously, there are some people who need to work 60 hours a day, yeah, uh, which is fine. Let them, yeah. They could do it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I'm a lazy person. Um, wh who stands between us and that idea which would probably improve everyone's lot? It's a really interesting question because I'm personally convinced that not only is all this work unnecessary, it's actually destroying the planet. Um, if people just stopped doing unnecessary work, that would reduce carbon at, uh, to such a point where we'd probably that itself would get rid of most of the problem. Uh, so so it's, not, it's not just that we have this um, puritanical need to work unnecessarily. We, we're working even though it's destroying us. We're, we're killing ourselves through working. Uh, and I've thought long and hard about the reasons. I think there's a lot of different factors. I think part of it is, is just political. I actually have a friend who... Um, also of the same generation, but very much from ruling class circles, who told me that you know, when he was going to college in 68, 69, 70, they were holding seminars in the elite about what to do with the problem of leisure. They were actually freaking out. Um, they were saying, oh no, um, technology is developing too quickly. Once they automate everything, I mean, we think the hippies are bad now. What's going to happen when the entire working class turns into hippies? Um, so there was an idea that we should decelerate the sort of space-age automation techn robotic technology. And around that time, if you look, investment shifted, especially after the Russians were no longer competition in the space race, uh, to sort of medical technology, information technology, military technology, of course, you know, basically means of social control. So that's part of it. I think they just want us to keep working because they, they feel they want to keep people off the streets. But I think there's more to it because why did people accept this? I think there's a really, really deep puritanical idea maybe not that I should be working all the time, although a lot of people do feel that, but this kind of obsession with the idea that somebody else might be getting away with something. You know, everybody's kind of looking over their shoulders at each other. I, I, in the original article, I think I actually came up with this as a metaphor. I said, imagine hell as a bunch of people, all of whom are working really hard at something they're not very good at and don't actually want to do, which doesn't even really need doing, but they're just all so obsessed that somebody else might be doing less of it than they are, that they just make each other work all the time. In a way, that's the society we've created for ourselves. So uh, I'm, I'm very interested. You, just, you don't just blame the billionaires running some kind of cabal to force us all to be... Well, there is that. I mean, <laughs> there is obviously that. Because we, we're all complicit in yeah. this. I mean, some of you can trace back to uh, Tawny and Weber and the... the Even the, earlier, yeah. The philosophical underpins mm -hmm. yeah. of the, uh, the Reformation. 
I mean, it's a blessed relief, obviously, to be <laughs> to be free of the Catholic Church, part Shay Craig. <laughs> um, but you know, the the Protestant Revolution has brought it, its own issues. Even in the times of COVID, mm -hmm. we've seen the the Snoop Dogs pointing the fingers at people having, you know, pic picnics in the park in May or whatever they're doing now. Um, we're all complicit in this, aren't we? I think so. I think there's a strain of Puritanism, this obsession with the idea that somebody else might be having fun in a way that I can't or that I won't allow myself to. Um, there's a fear of pleasure. And, and there... I even talked to very, very liberally-minded people, uh, people who consider themselves pretty solidly left-wing, and I say, well, what about a universal basic income? Why don't, you know, why don't we just get rid of all these jobs and, and let people decide for themselves what, how they want to contribute to the world? I say, well, you know, at the moment, people are all working eight-hour days. What if they weren't? What if they were only working an hour or two? What if a lot of people weren't working? I mean, crime rates would go up, you know? Uh, drug use would go up. Uh, alcoholism would go up. People would feel isolated. And, you know, to which my response was like, well, why don't we just put them all in prison for eight hours a day, you know? Um, the bullshit jobs has come out of your... <laughs> 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 um, having said that, you know, I'm on my way to Cornwall tomorrow, and I yeah. think there is a leisure activity at Bodbin Jail where you can book yourself in overnight. <laughs> oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah. In Bodbin Jail. I guess jail would be fun if you could get out at any time. Yeah. Jail with a safe word. <laughs> no, it's, um, I mean, in a way, we're always trying to put brakes on ourselves. I mean, the question that, that comes to me is. The bullshit jobs, do they, if we do blame the billionaires for a minute, mm -hmm. do they want us to work because they're scared of us being feckless and the whole world t turning into shameless, the Channel 4 series? Or are they scared that if we all wrote daffodils, if we all painted ourselves with one ear missing, that somehow <laughs> we'd create a creativity that overwhelms the forces, the dark forces of, let's call it capitalism? I think that's part of it. I think that there is a fear of creativity. There's a fear of imagination. Um, I once thought to myself, actually thought that that's really the difference between the left and the right. Um, the left are people who actually aren't afraid to unleash imagination outside of the household. Uh, right wing and um, are people who feel that, you know, you can be imaginative at home if you like, although, but imagination is essentially kind of demonic or scary. Creativity is scary. There's something, it's like this kind of furnace driving us, the id. And if it's unleashed too much, it'll cause a destruction. Uh, so conservatives are people who think, uh, well, we must not unleash imagination in the public domain because that will create chaos and violence and terror. Um, Left-wing left-wingers are people who think, no, it won't. And fascists are people who think, yes, unleashing imagination will cause chaos and violence and terror, but let's do it anyway. So, I mean, David, you make, you make you know, very articulate observations on the human race, both at a macro and micro level. What makes you an anthropologist? I mean, what's an anthropologist? Is it a bullshit job? I mean, what do you do in the morning? What do I do? Oh, um, well, I mean, I'm a teacher. So the most obvious uh, question about my job is like, the worth of my job is you can talk to my students about that, and, you know, uh, 
they seem to be pretty happy. Um, for the most part. Um, I write books. People seem to buy them. You know, um, People even want me to go on the radio to talk about them, so I guess I must be doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and indeed, you're on Idler Radio tomorrow night. That's right. But, uh, we don't want to talk about other t uh, radio stations. Um, I asked you, because uh, we've known each other for a while. David is not only a public intellectual and uh, many other things, but he's also a local, which is important to all of us. Um, I, I'd never asked you, you know, what was the anthropology you did, the bit where you oh. went to live, you know, with people who weren't from West London or New York? Oh. Where did you go? I lived in Madagascar for two years, actually. Uh, between 1989 and 1991, I spent almost two years, um, largely in a small rural community called Betafu. I learned Malagasy. I ended up writing a book about it called Lost People, uh, Magic and the Legacy of Slavery in, in Madagascar. Well, I mean, Madagascar, I mean, I don't know as much as I should. It's obviously a Portuguese colony. Uh, French. Oh, French. Mozambique uh, across the straits is Portuguese. Uh, right. yeah. uh, it's an island. I know it's got a, an interesting ecology because it, yeah. it managed to keep rats or something mm -hmm. out. Um, what took you to Madagascar? What Set the scene a little bit in Madagascar. Why Madagascar? I actually went to Madagascar in part because I really liked the stories. Um, I was, my advisor, Marshall Solon, suggested that I should, um, I might be interested in going there just because he said, well, your mind kind of works like that. And I didn't really understand what he meant. But I read a lot of fairy tales uh, from Madagascar, and they were just hilarious. Um, if I remember correctly, okay, this will give you an illustration. Um, you know, in all, when you tell myths or fairy tales, you always have a, a, a line that says, this is going to be a fairy tale, right? Like, once upon a time. It always has a tagline at the end, they lived happily ever after in English. So in Malagasy, the sort of way you end uh, a fairy tale is to say, it is not I who lie. These lies come from ancient times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, you, actually, you must... Uh, you must Come and join us next Thursday where <laughs> ISIS is hosting a, uh, a storytelling session oh, with yeah. a guy called Jean Natiti, who's from a storyteller from Kenya. Cool. And if yeah. you've got any Malahassee, that would be fantastic. Sure. I mean, if you want me to tell some Malagasy stories, I can, but it might take some time. Yeah. <laughs> um, what can we, the bullshit job, tell? How, do, how did the, they're indigenous people, the people oh. you. They live there, yeah. Yeah. And where... Actually, Madagascar is interesting because it was one of the last places on Earth to actually be populated. Uh, around seven or 800 AD, there was... Well, maybe 600 AD, there was nobody there. Uh, and the population is Afro-Asian. They're equally derived from Southeast Asia and Africa. And their language is actually most closely related to languages spoken in places like Borneo. It's an Austronesian language. And... What do you learn from? Is there, you know, if you span forward, that was what twenty, thirty years ago now. Yeah. If you span forward to what we're looking at, and I hope we can talk about things like consensual decision making, mm, uh, yeah. the stupidity of growth at the minute. But what do you learn from them as people? Well, there's a lot of things. Um, I mean, you live in a place for two years. There's, you know, it's an entirely different universe, and. Um, you know, I could talk for days about it. But specifically, if we're talking about uh, my later stuff on direct democracy, actually, it's very interesting. Because I've considered myself an anarchist for, uh, since I was a teenager, I guess. Um, the reason why 
Well, the way I always put it is um, most people don't think anarchism is a bad idea. They, they think it's insane, right? Uh, they assume, well, yeah, that would be nice if there were no cops and people would just get along and, you know, uh, dream on. People would just kill each other. Uh, well, you know, I come from a family where that was not assumed. My father lived in Barcelona after the revolution. He knew that oh, anarchists were basically organizing everything. It worked fine. I mean, there were problems, but no more than there are anywhere else. Uh, so I, I never thought anarchism was insane. So there was no reason not to be an anarchist. So, okay, I was an anarchist. But I never actually lived in a place without state authority. So here I am showing up in rural Madagascar, and I realize after a while that there actually is no state authority in the place where I was. I'm, there were cops who were basically along the highway, and they would keep the highway open. And, um, but as soon as you go off the paved road, which is almost everywhere uh, in rural Madagascar, police would not come. I mean, maybe if somebody was murdered in the full view of other people who then went down to the town and got the police to come, maybe they'd show up. Otherwise, they didn't care. So nobody was paying taxes. Police would not come. People were governing themselves, um, you know, as anarchists would, but they were smart enough not to say that. You know, they didn't put up a big flag saying, ha, 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 we are autonomous, because then the government would have had to do something about it. So basically, they had created a situation where it was as inconvenient as possible. You know, if the state authorities just showed up, didn't do anything, and went away, they'd be really, really nice to them. If they started actually exercising any sort of authority, they'd make their lives so difficult, they would just say, oh, the hell of it, and go away. Um, so I got to observe firsthand how people can actually organize things uh, without top-down structures of command. Um, I'm hoping we're going to talk uh, about some of the issues of decision-making, citizens' assemblies in a minute. Hmm. Um, we're going to just play one quick tune. I chose a tune for you. Hmm. I'm hoping you might choose one in a minute. Okay. Uh, I chose Talking Heads, Heaven. Hmm. Heaven is a place where nothing, nothing ever happens. Hmm. In the light of what, Keen said about leisure society, about the fact that so many... Is that possibly a true statement or a false statement, that heaven <laughs> is a place where nothing happens? You, oh, you want me to answer that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Unless David Burns on the line. It sounds... <laughs> it might be. Oh, we'll play the tune you can answer after. Uh, yeah, okay.
Ladies and gentlemen, oh, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Portobello Radio. It's the Portobello Pavilion, the Portobello Hive, coming live from Westbourne Studios. And behind me, you can hear Westbourne Park Station <laughs> on the world-famous Hammersmith and City Line. Uh, I've got with me David Graeber, the Professor of Anthropology at LSE, amongst many other things. And we were just talking about his time in Madagascar, which is where he saw... Anarchy, I think that's fair to say, David, for the first time. Yeah, it was it, so, and it worked so well that I didn't even realize until almost a year that that actually that's what it was. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've heard of I can't remember is the Christian Islands or whatever, which were kind of lawless, where the terrible pedo sex rings emerged. Mm-hmm. How? So you've got, uh, as you you were saying, that the state cops just kept the highways open. Yeah. And well, in the part of Madagascar I was in, remember, Madagascar is a very big place. Yeah, yeah long and thin. <laughs> um, and then off-road, mm-hmm. it was kind of up to the communities mm-hmm. to self-organize. Mm-hmm. How, um, you know, how do you, how do you stop the strong from being overbearing? How do you protect the weak without a national health service? How does it all work? Ah, well, I mean, it was very rare that they had to intervene against bullies, but occasionally you do. Um, there was a town called Mom, uh 
where probably had 10, 12, 13,000 people, maybe more, maybe 20. Um, so that was a big place. And there were one or two kind of notorious bullies. Um, but um, they would go after people um, if they were to, you know, if they raped people or things like that. But there was actually a principle that you could only act, lynch somebody if you got their parents' permission first. Wow, like almost <laughs> yeah. like marriage. Yeah. So basically, it had to be so bad that even their both their parents would say, "Okay, okay, do what you like." So of course, it never happened. What it really meant was that dad would say, "Look, kid, I can't protect you much longer," and the guy would get out of town. In, you know, in this time of bullies, the you know Erdogan's, the Trumps, the Putins, the whatever the guy in Hungary is called, and our own dear Boris Orban, Johnson. Yeah. Uh, it mm. seems extraordinary that, uh, you know, a means of, because that's kind of democracy in the old-fashioned oh, yeah. sense, could could pertain for so long in so-called, you know, indigent circumstances without becoming the preserve of the bully. I mean, what was there a process? I mean, you, you David, are, you know, you're, you're quite famous for having introduced the citizens' assembly or formalized the citizens' assemblies in Occupy. Well, I was one of the people involved. Yes. I know you helped XR a little bit in mm. how to structure their citizens' assembly. I wasn't assembly. actually involved with the structure. I was involved with the brain trust. I still have right. him. Anyway, you, but how, yeah, do, we, how do we organize mm. a citizens' assembly? I mean, there are people out there right now. They are mm. in an RA, Residents' Association. They're in a mm -hmm. pressure group. You know, they're uh, minorities on the council. How... Um, what processes do you have, do you introduce to make sure that the systems assembly is not dominated by loud voices, mm -hmm. that it's not just um, a committee designing a camel when they wanted a dromedary or the other way around? Uh, what's the toolkit? Well, I'm long experience. I mean, the thing about Madagascar is that people grew up doing it. And one of the things I realized um, when I started getting involved in activist groups in the U.S. versus the Direct Action Network back around 2000, right after Seattle, I got involved in anarchist politics in a hands-on sort of way. And I realized that, you know, people who grow up in a society like um, rural Madagascar, they've always made decisions that way because um, that's just how you do it. Uh, and therefore, they had a set of tools. Um, in fact, retro is only retrospectively. You know, we Americans, um, since we didn't know what we were doing, Americans always talk about themselves as a democratic society. But I suddenly realized, when was the last time a group of Americans that I knew had sat in a room and made a collective decision together? Maybe when ordering a pizza, you know, but deciding what movie to see. Otherwise, forget it. You know, so it's not really a democratic society in terms of actually knowing how. Uh, whereas people in a lot of parts of the world, like Madagascar, you know, rural Amazonia, South America, if you go to Southeast Asia, if you go, oh, you know, people in a small Chinese village will do this sort of thing all the time. But actually, people on a construction site make decisions by consensus all the time, too. It's really just middle class people who don't know how to do it at all um, or can't imagine how they would. Um, you know, it's just the way you make decisions when you're aware that you can't leave anybody too pissed off. Um, and you know, people talk about majority vote versus consensus as if these are two different formal processes and you have to choose one or, or the other. It's not really the case. Um, actually, any 
any place where you can't force a minority to do what a majority says, you basically got a consensus system. The question is how you get to the point where everybody more or less agrees. And you got to come up with a system where everybody is equally heard, um, but also where things are decentralized as much as possible. And, and to me, I always thought the consensus works really well with decentralization because it takes so long to make to go through a process where everybody gets their perspective in. That I mean, there are communities like you go to Latin America. A lot of communities, it takes two days to make a decision, but they really like it. You know, that's that's their idea of fun to go through debates and discussions. Uh, people were more cut to the point. You know, um, you can speed things up, but. Um, you know, if it, if it takes that long, it's better to make the decision in a small group if you possibly can. So the two kind of complement each other. So you got to decentralize decision-making as much as possible, but make sure for the really big ones, everyone is consulted. People I know in the Kurdish movement uh, told me, for example, that when they decided to uh, abandon their demand for a separate state and um, replace women's liberation with working uh, the working class as the sort of major... Uh, direction of of the revolution it took a year and a half to go through the consensus process to get everybody to agree with that i'm i'm glad you brought up your your um association with the kurds i mean for some of us the kurds have a kind of incredibly romantic image mm. because you you know all we see is is them fighting on homeland and other tv shows they seem to be completely mixed in terms of male and female representation. They seem to be believed deeply in what they're doing. What? How did you get involved with the Kurdish movement? Well, people from the Kurdish movement really got in touch with me. Actually, um, I, you know, it's funny because I'd read somewhere that Ojalan, you know, the leader of the PKK, had suddenly become an anarchist in prison and decided that. He was against all nations, so this nationalist movement had sort of converted to being anti-nationalist. And you know, I thought it was amusing, uh, but I didn't take it all that seriously. And I was like, sort of joked to myself, "Gee, I wonder if like I'll be hearing from a lot of Kurdish people soon." And you know, within two years, it was true. I actually, I started getting people sending me emails saying, "Well, we'd really like you to come to our seminar. We'd really uh, help, like you know, we've got we're brainstorming how to do the de directly democratic process in Rojava." And, uh, I mean, they contacted as many people as they could possibly think to contact, and I was one of the ones who wrote back, that's all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great interest, particularly to us at the Pavilion Hive, because our, mm -hmm. our founder, Tim Burke, um, mm -hmm. was a great supporter of the Kurds, and used to, when he had the pop-up cinema, used to run ah, really? multiple nights of uh -huh. Kurdish films. Um, so... R.I.P. Tim out there. I had a good friend who was a Kurdish filmmaker who actually died in Rojava, Mehmet Aksoy. Mm. Boo. Yeah. Um, do you do you travel the world much, David? I mean, you you came over here not from recently. New York, <laughs> uh, obviously not in the times of COVID, <laughs> but your ten schools go all around the world. Do you do you travel much? I. Do. I do. I have a tendency to, I'm kind of down on revolutionary tourism, you know, just sort of showing up and wherever the action is and saying, here I am, you know. Um, I don't want to intrude. But when people actually want me around, you know, I will show up. So I tend to uh, respond when I get invited. For a while, I went to East Asia a, a great deal because anarchists in Japan and Korea were really interested in my work. 
Um, I've also, as I've been to Rojava a couple times now. Where where's the anarchy hotspot right <laughs> now? Um, I mean, you know, it's we're in a very polarized world, hmm. so everyone seems to be fighting on one side of the barricades or the other. Um, where does anarchy flourish right now? Well, I think it's everywhere. I mean, one of the things that I like to point out is that, you know, well, communism, we think of communism as an ideology. You know, once there was primitive communism someday, there might be a communist society. But communism is just the principle of from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. We all do that all the time. Every time you ask somebody for a light, you're basically being a communist. Um, if, you know, working at a job and someone says, hand, hand me the wrench, the other guy doesn't say, yeah, what do I get? You know, so, so we're all, you know, communism is just the way we get things done. In a similar way, anytime you make a decision uh, without actually appealing to some higher authority or about threatening people in any way, you're basically being an anarchist. Uh, in terms of places where there's political struggle going on, it depends. I mean, I don't really care whether people call themselves anarchists or not. There's a lot of good reasons not to in the world as it exists today. But um, you know, the Zapatistas are anti-state. The um, Kurds in Rojava and um, other parts uh, of the Middle East, the Kurdish freedom movement, also very explicitly anti-state. And movements inspired by that are cropping up all over the place. But I think we also shouldn't forget the places where people not, not only don't call themselves anarchists, but don't even talk about what's going on at all. No one would have known in the period when I was in Madagascar that the state basically wasn't operating there. I think there's large parts of the world where people are simply getting on in effectively an anarchist way and are smart enough not to say so. Almost basically hoping the authorities don't notice. Do you... Um how is COVID going to impact on that? I mean, for some reason, I don't know why, as you said that, I thought of Bolsonaro, mm. I thought of Brazil, I thought of the, you know, the incalculable number of deaths yeah. they're suffering and the fact that the Amazon is being burnt, you know, on the sly because no one's, everyone's too scared to go in there. Let's not even touch the subject of the viruses that we're letting to escape by burning deeper and deeper into it. Um, well, COVID, I mean, it's an interesting thing about COVID because some people are, you know, have made the case that authoritarian regimes, this is an argument for authoritarian regimes, and a lot of authoritarian regimes, you know, uh, grabbed even more power. You know, Hungary is a great example of that. Uh, but if you look at what's actually happened, you know, places like Rojava or the Zapatistas have, have done really well because you know, they actually have some idea of community. I don't think it so much has to do with authority. I think it has to do, well, in a way it does have to do with authority, but not that, but, but in the sense that authority is that which means you don't have to threaten people with weapons. I mean, if real authority is people actually take you seriously and think you know, uh, know something they don't know, because say you're a doctor. Um, I think that the places that have done the best are places where there is some notion of society, uh, where there is, where people believe that experts aren't lying to them. Um, for example, um, if you look at East Asia, you know, 
both the dem democratic countries in East Asia and the least democratic have done about as well. All of them have done better than democratic or authoritarian countries in places like the, uh, Brazil, America, Europe, so forth and so on. So, so it's not whether they're democratic or authoritarian. I think it really has to do with do people actually believe what they read in the news or what they what they see on TV? Um, here, nobody does because they have no reason to. But then you don't know what to believe. So there's been a systematic process in places like the UK and the US of the authorities undermining authority as a way of creating their own, uh, you know, maximizing their own power. Uh, I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by that particular issue, mm. and we'll pick it up after mm -hmm. the next song. But I've got one last question on that the subject of anarchy. Okay. Is it possible to say that the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon, <laughs> in the way that they're reacting to Boris Johnson, and by maintaining almost as their most important mm. focus, being a devolved part of that union, hmm. could you call that anarchy or is that just insubordination? <laughs> um, I really think it depends on what they intend to do once they get the autonomy. I think that they are channeling anarchist impulses, but in a nationalist direction ultimately. Great. Um, we're going to come back to the topic of disinformation by the people who are supposed to depend on the real information. Greg, so you've got a tune for us. Portobello Radio. Stay. 
Yeah, apologies. Apologies to anyone who um, realised I only brought up Nicholas Sturgeon in order to create a segue to that song. Um, just before I made that cheesy link, we were about to discuss <laughs> the we? fact that the forces of authority mm -hmm. are themselves undermining authority, yeah. their own authority in a, what seems to be an attempt to discombobulate us so that we just ignore everything. Would that be fair to say? It's a really, really strange mindset. I've been trying to figure it out, and I, I, I think I finally figured out Trump um, during the election, or right after the election, actually. He, uh, he just won the election. He did a rally, a sort of victory round of rallies. And um, at one point, he mentioned Hillary Clinton, and everybody started chanting, lock her up, lock her up, as they were wont to do in his rallies. And he actually said, I remember seeing this on TV, he said, no, no, we don't have to use that line anymore. That was a good line for us to use like during the campaign, but now that we won, we don't have to. And I realized, oh, I understand. What he, the scam in the case of a guy like Trump, and I think this is true of most what they call right-wing populists, the scam is to trick you into thinking you're part of the scam. You're one of the scammers rather than the person being scammed. So everybody was sitting there thinking they were putting something over on somebody, somebody else and didn't realize that actually the, the person they were scamming was themselves. I mean, the, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's our old friend fake news, isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. if you are a government that has, you know, dodgy motivations, whatever it is, you know, I'm sure many of you out there are big fans of Donald Trump and Vladimir <laughs> Putin. Um, but if you, uh, if you have dodgy motivations, if you just keep sending out signals mm. that confuse and mm -hmm. I mean to take a very good example or obvious example is Trump's inauguration. Mm -hmm. There are photographs oh, right. yes. showing that he had way fewer people yeah. than Obama. But or anybody he, he or then, hardly he then, anybody he there. He then yeah. made that an issue straight away. Everyone knew it was a load of rubbish, mm -hmm. but by doing that he kind of undermined the authority of the truth. Because the president of the United States is just talking gibberish. So if he talks gibberish, the whole world talks gibberish. So mm. I'll go back to being a greedy capitalist bastard. It's one of the first lines of power. I've noticed this. There um, people in the situations of authority will do this. will just come in and say, okay, well, we all agree that 2 plus 2 equals 5, don't we? And, you know, you're just terrified because what are you going to say? Well, all right. And, you know, this is how they demonstrate their power over you. The first thing they do is make you agree with something that obviously isn't true. And the scam in Trump is taking it one step further. Is just waving it in your face because he's got his guys behind him saying two plus two equals five, right? <laughs> I, I'm glad you brought up two plus two <laughs> equals five. One of my um, bugbears, some would say obsessions, is mm -hmm. the fact that if you were to reread, re and you should do it out there, people, George Orwell's 1984, mm. it posits that all these things mm. are going to be imposed mm -hmm. by the government. But actually, the surveillance network that George Orwell envisions, I personally am paying £50 a month <laughs> <Yes>. for. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am passionately anti-ID. Mm. However, through COVID, on 10 days ago, I went to a pub somewhere, they didn't know me, and I did a QR reader and filled in a thing, and I thought, if only I had a nice chip which mm. would tell everyone who I was 
and whether I was COVID-free or COVID-not, not unlike your t uh, mobile phone as a mm -hmm. Chinese citizen, um, 1984 is going to come to us by popular demand. That is the irony, surely, of the whole thing. It does seem that way. I mean, well, once you undermine anybody's sense of reality, you know, people will cling to whatever seems like the strongest branch in the storm. Um, I think that that's part of it. But I think that um, it's it's very very interesting. I'm. To me, the real turning point was when the left wing, or the, the center left, and not the actual left wing, you know, started embracing conspiracy theories. Because on the one hand, they would accuse anybody who thought that people in power are doing anything that they're not actually claiming they're doing as being a mad conspiracy theorist. But then all of a sudden, the moment they lost an election, they were like, oh, you know, the Russians did it. Russian spies are responsible for my loss. I mean, anybody who would have said that a week before, they would have told, told you know, called completely insane. And it's especially funny to me because actually, you know, my wife is Russian and she knows perfectly well that Russian spies are terrible. They're <laughs> completely incompetent. Uh, this, this would be my point. <laughs> I mean, in the great debate, conspiracy versus cock-up, yeah. I have a background of great privilege and mm. I've met many Etonians and I can mm. tell you people out there, yeah. none of them have the capacity to pull off any of the conspiracy theories any of you think mm. they're up to. Yeah, I know. It's I, I, I went to school with some of those guys, too. Um, it's actually very funny. If you look at what actually happened during the Cold War, both the Americans and the Russian spies were just complete idiots. Um, I remember seeing at one point uh, they... There was a famous case where they thought there was this mole in American intelligence. Because every time they would send a spy to an embassy in Eastern Europe, or pretty much anywhere, the Russians would instantly know who they were. They'd either be arrested or tailed. And you know, they, they, they kept um, arresting people and interrogating them and finally having to let them go. But as soon as the Cold War ended, they went to the sort of Soviet counterintelligence um, spy master and said, OK, so who was it? And he said, what? There was no mole. He said, well, how did you know who our spies were? And he said, because you paid them more. <laughs> we just looked at the payroll. The spies got more than a person normally would have in that position. So, oh, right, we didn't think of that. <laughs> On the other hand, because the Russian spies, apparently there's people in the Russian subway, you know, in the tube, selling you discs with the names of all the spies, and they all have sequentially listed passports. I, <laughs> They're that bad. <laughs> <laughs> David, are you a spy? Um, well, and if so, I, who for? I conspire, but I'm not a spy. <laughs> yeah. No, if you've got any, uh, we've got an opening for a spy at Portobello Radio. Um, tell us a little bit about your new work, what you're doing at the moment. Oh, I'm writing a book of an archaeologist named David Wengro, and it's about, it's kind of rewriting the story of prehistory. Um, we originally wanted to do a book about the origins of social inequality, but we quickly realized that it's kind of a dumb question uh, in that it assumes that we all used to live in tiny little bands of egalitarian hunter-gatherers for most of human history, and it turns out that's not really true. Uh, in fact, we have this story we all lived in little bands of uh, happy little bands of egalitarian hunter-gatherers, and then they discover agriculture, and everything goes downhill. You get private property. Um, then they get cities, and as soon as you have cities, you have bureaucracy and states and armies and patriarchy. Um, but you also get you know, writing and high culture and so forth, science. Um, so civilization kind of comes as a package, take it or leave it. This is a story we've been telling ourselves basically since Rousseau. And what's really interesting is that none of it's actually true. Archaeologists um, know now that hunter-gatherers, first of all, 
didn't actually live in tiny bands of uh, hunter-gatherers. Often it seems like um, they would move back and forth between little cities and, and bands, and so they'd have totally different social structures in different times of year. They might have like you know actual police force, but only for three months, and who they would be would rotate. Or they'd have a king, but only for a certain period of time, and the rest of the year they'd have a totally different social structure. So the real question of, uh, isn't where does social inequality come from, but how do we get stuck in just one mode where we can't change it? Uh, early cities, for example, are often extremely egalitarian. Most of them actually were. And uh, when you say early cities, we're talking before Athens, obviously. Uruk. Um, the Tripolia civilization in Ukraine, that would be, you know, uh, maybe 5,000 years ago. Hmm. Great. Yeah. Now, um, we're about to wrap up. You've been listening to me, Piers Thompson, talking to David Graeber, um, a well-known local <laughs> gentleman, um, as part of the Portobello mm. Pavilion. Uh, Greg is going to be playing a final tune, Politic by Manu Chow. Oh, that's nice. Now, David, we haven't really discussed politics up no. till now. Does politics matter? You mean, you mean national politics? Any kind mm -hmm. of politics. And we've talked about consensual decision-making. Mm. We've talked about your father seeing, you know, what went on in mm. Barcelona in the revolution. We've, we've mm. talked about how... Uh, XR and um, Occupy, mm -hmm. many people found a way of coming to uh, positive, uh, you know, mm. conclusions without all being at each other's throats in a kind of Brexit meets um, shall I wear a mask kind of way. I would um, just, yeah. How can, how can we make politics more than just all fighting with each other? Well, I think that it's different between politics and politicians. You know, I mean, politics can be a good thing if it's a way of collective problem solving. Uh, in a way, I always say the secret of anarchism, anarchy if you like, is, is to create a way that a group of people is smarter than any one particular member. You just have a crowd, you know, that crowd will be stupider than any one individual in that crowd. And therefore, it seems to make sense to just take one person and make them king or prime minister or whatever it might be. But there are methods that you can actually make that crowd of people smarter than any one of them. Um, that's what we call process as anarchists. And it takes a lot of practice. In Madagascar, they've been doing it all their lives, so people know how to do it. We're just sort of starting to learn. But there are ways that if you take politics as a me method of collective problem solving, we can all be a lot smarter than we already are. And we could definitely be smarter, a lot smarter than any politician. Thank you, David mm -hmm. Graeber. That is a fab fabulously positive mm -hmm. end to the show. Um, for those of you listening live, you're about to hear Enter the Symbiocene with Glenn Albrecht, which takes this idea further. How, you know, even meditation can move us on. Um, perhaps you'll come back and talk to us before too long, David. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you are listening to Portobello Radio coming live and direct from Westbourne Studios in Deepest W10. Thank you, Tiernan, our Sorcerer's Apprentice. Thank you, David Graeber. Thank you, Greg Weir. Manu Chow.
Politik needs your mind. Politik needs human beings. Politik needs lies. That's why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politik is violence. Why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politik is violence. Drugs. Politic use bombs. Politic need torpedoes. Politic needs blood. That's why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politic is violence. Why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politic is violence. Politic need force. Politic need cries. Politic need ignorance. Politic need lies. Politic kills, politic kills, politic kills. Calling out, out across, across London, London and the rest of the, the world, world from, from the heart of Flatbrook Grove. Grove.